Welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. I'm your host, Stella Bales. In this podcast series, I'll be interviewing experts in emerging areas of PR. We'll be taking those hot topics in public relations, dispelling any myths, breaking down the jargon, so you are completely clued up and ready to speak to your stakeholders by the time you reach the office. If you have any questions around the episode, please feel free to tweet me at Stella Bales. Welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking to Anthony Hayes. He's the founder of the Hayes Initiative, and they're based in New York. The reason I want to speak to Anthony is because they have just been recognised by PR Week in the US as best in public affairs. And that was for their work in helping to expose the abuse allegations against Harvey Weinstein. So that was the work of Time's Up for that. So it's very well deserved acknowledgement from PR Week there. Anthony isn't a stranger to working on high pressure situations. He's worked with presidential candidates, members of the US cabinet, governors, elected officials, law enforcement officials, and high ranking legal professionals too, all within their communications. So yeah, it's fair to say he is used to working in crisis situations. I really wanted to get Anthony's views about the last year and PR's role in working in crisis, but specifically how misinformation in the media can not only affect the public, but our roles to play as PR professionals in that. I wanted to get his view on the responsibility between editors, PR people and social platforms and the effect it can have when ethics aren't upheld. Interestingly, we also look at when communications are carried out by other areas of digital marketing and not PR professionals and whether ethics are really upheld in those scenarios. Finally, Anthony shares how he found his calling in public affairs and his advice to young people who may have a desire to follow their hearts and do communications for causes that they care about. Here's Anthony. Anthony, welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited that you've joined me on this podcast because I saw that you recently, you and your team recently won a PR Week Award. Congrats. That's the US Thank one. You. Business. Thank you so much. So it's best in public affairs, right? Yeah, so we did work with uh, Time's Up. This is the people who uh, did incredible work around taking down Harvey Weinstein and a lot of the various high-profile people that I think globally everybody's sort of seen. We did work with them in New York, and we're very proud of that work. And PR Week uh, recognized it as, as with an honorable mention for Best in Public Affairs. So we were very honored to get that and honored to do that work. So it was great. Huge is very well deserved. Um, you've just got that award, right? It was this year. Yeah, this year. At the end of what has been, I think, in my PR career at least, which is around 18 years, I would say, we've just (laughs) seen like one of the most dramatic, some would say most stressful years with with 12 months we've ever seen. And it really affects the public as well. Global pandemic, huge social movements, massive political change. And it seems that you and your team were involved in quite a few of those because you are dealing with public affairs and crisis. <laughs> and I do want to go into a couple of those different areas as, as we chat. But I guess my first question for you is crisis and public affairs reputation was always another department for me. So I was always consumer communications, consumer products. Um, and sure. 
it just feels like over the last year that we've seen now every comms person needs to be trained in crisis because are we ever not in crisis? I mean, what's your thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a really great sort of pause. I mean, I, for some reason, love it. So I think that really that's a conversation probably more for my therapist than you and I, but like, I really do enjoy it. And it's always been my career. It's always been a key part of my career. You know, I really sort of got started in the communication world um, doing LGBTQ advocacy here in the United States of America. And that was where, you know, you, when you go and you have complicated um, conversations with elected officials who really don't want to give you your rights, you know, you learn how to communicate pretty clearly in, in pretty hostile environments. Um, and then it just sort of escalated from there. But to your larger point about just comms people in general needing to have some sort of understanding of comms, I think it probably should be fairly specialized just because I think some of the other stuff that everybody else does, I would, I, I would sort of look at them and be like, I can't do that, you know, because there's plenty of people that call us and say, hey, you know, we hear you're great at this. And, and we're like, well, we're great at that, at that part of this, yeah. you know, so it's like people sort of, you know. I, I don't have to tell you or your listeners, but everyone thinks they can do communications. You know, everybody thinks that they can do anything. And it's, you know, I'm like, well, if, if you can, then knock yourself out. But, you know, the reality is, is it's actually an enormous amount of work. There's a little bit of, you know, I was listening to one of your episodes this morning, just getting prepared to to talk to you. And there's a little bit of art and science. And I'm, I'm blanking on the, on the gentleman you had on who you guys sort of talked about the data behind everything and understanding your audience you know, there is a real thought to Alex Jones, how this I just happens. Alex Jones. Alex. Yes, <laughs> Alex. Alex. It was a great episode. No, it was it was an excellent episode. And it but it got to the point of, you know, I think people, you know, think, oh, well, we'll just call the comms people, you know, and, and we tend to get brought in at the very last minute. And, you know, so I, I think that crisis is a very specific thing. I think you should, I think comms people need to know when it maybe is above their head, not, and I don't mean that in that, that they couldn't figure it out or do it or be trained in it, but I just mean, in it's not their specialty because, you know, as we've seen, it unravels fast if you're not handling it well. And so I think that's really the trick. And I think, you know, one of the things I love about this business is being connected to people who maybe have a piece of the PR space that I don't have, because then I can just sort of partner with them or pass off work, et cetera. And so, and I think others, um, we have a lot of people who do that as well. And I think it's more just sort of making sure in your Rolodex, you know, if that's a term that we even use anymore, but you have people who do this so that you can, you can service your clients, right? Especially if you're in the client um, sort of agency side mm. of things. I think there's something that you've mentioned about it being specialist is and how it's different to other types of communications and this is perfect because I haven't worked in in crisis before is the difference between having the luxury I'll say in planning a comm strategy and then being in crisis having to make extremely quick decisions now don't get me wrong I have been on press offices at various times and having to make quick decisions but in such high pressured situations like I know that I'm not sure how much we can talk about certain things but I'm sure you'll stop me if I need to but, I'll, I'll okay. tell you if it's I'll tell you if we um, can <laughs> I know that um you and your team worked on a US airport security breach um a while ago now something something like that when it's it happens it's instantly in the news and not just the fact that it's in the news it has a huge knock-on effect to that area was it in new york can you say that 
it wasn't yeah so i managed at the time before i started my firm was when i sort of worked on what you're discussing but i uh managed media and communications for the port authority of new york and new jersey and that agency it's a giant agency here in new york for those that don't know um and it's a you know it's annual budget is about seven billion dollars larger than most u.s states um, and it manages all of the major airports in the New York City area, the ports, the bridges, the tunnels. It has its own police department. It reports into two governors, the governor of New York and the governor of New Jersey. And it's it's just a giant agency. And it was one where it was just every day was some sort of crisis. Uh, and they also own the World Trade Center site, which rebuilt everything after 9-11. Wow. Um, something like that, where there has been a breach, and as I say, it's in it's in the news, and then everybody's heard about that, and then it has, as I say, a huge knock effect. So it's not just about the the feeling that public the public will have; it's about their decisions following that, and that is all going to make a change to that city and those airports those days following. And I feel like that that's something that we all need to, as communications practitioners now need to be able to make quick decisions and understand public feeling because of the things that have happened this year for you and your team when you're in that scenario like that how on earth do you try and track how people are feeling (laughs) and then and then or at least being able to gain some kind of insight to know which path to take next like where do you go with your communications from day to day based on how what you know how it's all unraveling in the public Sure. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think, you know, when when we're sort of faced with really difficult, whether it was, you know, while I, you know, the firm that I'm running now or in other jobs, it, it, it first starts with, a, is this an operations problem or is this a communications problem? Because they're two dramatically different things. A lot of times companies, organizations will try to solve what is a real operations problem, as you can imagine, with a security breach. That's an operations problem. You know, it becomes a communication problem. But what you have to do first is, is make sure, in my opinion, you have to make sure you're separating the two things because, you know, the comms people can't solve an operations problem. We can communicate how the operations problem is getting solved and what the impact of it was and what the public needs to know so that they feel secure about making the decisions they need to make and really move forward with transparency. But we can't fix the operations problem. And I think that that's sort of the first and big thing where you're talking these whether it's an airport, whether it's, you know, obviously public health, which I think as communication professionals, we've all had to sort of fight through that over the last, well, are still fighting through it uh, in truth, right? So I think you first have to figure out what those, what it is you're communicating, because, you know, you can't boil the ocean, so to speak, with every communication. And I think it's important as communicators to remember that. And certainly when you're in crisis, I think it's to take it step by step by step and break it down get your facts together and then figure out how you're going to communicate action because that's what people need, right? People want to feel empowered when there is something that impacts them. And I think part of the challenge that everyone had, you know, I, I can certainly speak for the United States. I, and I assume this is true in a, in a few other places. There wasn't a lot of confidence in the communication coming out of, you know, uh, certainly government entities around COVID, right? Some of it wasn't their fault because none of us knew, right? It was just new. And so we're figuring it out. But even when we started knowing more, I think just the communication um, certainly in the United States was absolutely uh, mm. terrible. In fact, I've just, just before I came onto this call, heard on the news that I've, 
I haven't looked, read the article yet, but I believe there's going to be an inquiry of how um, the UK government dealt with COVID at the at the start of the outbreak. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just how they dealt with it, but it's so how it was communicated yeah. the last 12 months and how the, the communications might have been managed by our authorities in different countries. But it feels like that we could be thinking about that with lots of other events that have happened. There seems to be a growing feeling of mistrust in how things have been um, led, organised and communicated. With something like that, how do you, in any type of crisis, if there is a huge feeling of mistrust in an organisation, a leader, a person, how on earth do you try and change that, change that opinion? Yeah, it's, it is, I, I think it, you know, I, I actually think that's the question of the next decade for communication professionals, because I think for the next decade, what comms professionals, regardless where you are and whether it is in the kind of work that we do, whether it's in the kind of work that, you know, you do maybe from B to B or B to C, the reality is there's mistrust and that's largely because there's misinformation. And so I think that, People are desperate for a place to go where they know they can rely on what they're being told because, again, people are wanting to be able to take action in their life. So whether that's a consumer good that let the consumer down, uh, whether that's you know a supply chain issue that let sort of a business down that then let consumers down or, or let a government down, or it's a government that really sort of misused funds or whatever, you know, I think we can fill in the blank on a lot of things that government <laughs> can do. But to me, to, to build that back, you have to start with really the basics of what people need to know, right? And what the public is asking, right? So there is a problem and you need to be able to figure out how to articulate, you know, quickly, succinctly, and clearly, like how you are going to solve that, because I think it needs to be action driven. I think people are tired of a lot of rhetoric. You know, while I love what I do, I think, you know, sometimes I think when you get in a room, you're like, yeah, and then we'll say this and, and, you know, and, and, you know, and don't forget to say that. And, you know, we try to include so many things, whereas we forget what the main point was, what's the main problem that the public is wanting to be solved and how do we demonstrate action? Because to me, that's the, that is the thing that is going to rebuild the trust, right? It's, it's, it's actually fairly simple. It's, you know, take action on the things that are a problem, demonstrate that you're solving them piece by piece, and articulate how long it's going to take. And if it takes longer, explain why. Because people can actually handle it if you tell them exactly what's happening. But you do have to sort of move forward with a, trans, a front foot in terms of being transparent and, and be action driven. That's how, to me, the only way to rebuild trust with anybody is to demonstrate yeah. action. I mean, especially something as big and uh, as big as a topic as COVID, there's so many layers to it and moving parts to it, but also how long it has lasted. It's quite a different kind of crisis mm-hmm. to what we might have been used to in the past, which we used to, when I, I know that when I have Absolutely. been to crisis workshops in the past or have learned about it, it's like, okay, so you have try and spot a crisis happening and then here's how you manage it and then here's how you move out of crisis and, and then look at your reputation. It's not as clearly packaged up, this one. Uh, <laughs> no. 
No, and it's funny that you bring it up because it, not only is it COVID, but right, we also have the social justice conversation that's taking place that is going to be and needs to be a sustained conversation. And, you know, I think there's a lot of it that on some level, I would say over the next couple of months, you know, May, June, July, I think you're going to be seeing what feels like we're coming on the other side of COVID. And I think that that's probably true, God willing, and people, vaccines and all the things that are happening. But But I do think, you know, 2021 and rolling into part of 2022 is going to still be about crisis communication broadly, because you're talking global institutions with thousands of employees are trying to figure out how to come back to work. That's like a crisis to get people back into a room, you know, here in New York City, Broadway uh, is trying to figure out how to reopen. You know, you finally have people in sports venues here in the United States. I know over in the uh, in Europe, that's happened a little bit earlier um, in certain places and different test cases. But everything is going to be a trial by error. But that's going to be we really are in some sort of sustained crisis. Getting people back into work, for a while. then we start to look at the. Yeah, the financial impact and social impact. And yeah, it's going to be for a while, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you mentioned about misinformation and um, and that being how um, mistrust um, really starts. So I guess coming out, just tackling some of these different areas that you've just mentioned of moving out of the COVID crisis, but then actually tackling the next ones. It's what we can learn from the last 12 months is how we do feed out this information, isn't it? And I think that it's, especially from a a government perspective, it's just, it does feel like it's been a little bit better this year in 2021 from our UK government. Some people might totally disagree with me, of course, but what well, it does feel like it has been better because it's sort of, they've shown us a plan and they've kept to that plan so far. Whereas, you know, all of last year it was yeah. the shit show. To be honest, we just didn't know what was going on. <laughs> um, but, you know, Absolutely. and that's why it does feel Absolutely. like there's a little bit more organisation, um, which can be expected. But it, we've been drip fed that information. And so, you know, it does feel a little bit more trustworthy. So, again, like, what can we learn with that without trying to not sort of give all of the information, but then also not keep too much back where it could seem like we're being... Yeah, not very trustworthy by keeping some information back. It's a real tricky balance, right? Yeah, it is. Listen, I I think that there is, uh, people have to realize that in the world we live in, between, you know, just how connected all people are, whether it's your customer, whether it's your, you know, your voter, whether, no matter who it is, that you're trying to communicate in your audience, everyone is hyper-connected. Not only are they hyper-connected to sort of see the messages that you're putting out into the universe, but they can start digging around to see what other people are saying. And so number one, if you're not putting out to your point, a clear plan, and again, what you're even just to use the example you just gave us, right? There was a plan of action presented to the public And they stuck to it and they were able to stick to it because they committed to it. Everybody agreed to it. And that was what it was. And so therefore, all of a sudden things became clear. People may not have loved it. Nobody loved what we went through with COVID. But once there was clear communication coming, people felt empowered of like, okay, got it. Four more weeks. And then we have this you know, in three weeks, they release the vaccine. And then what we do is this group goes first and this, the second group. And so there was just order to it. 
And so, you know, people are looking for that because what we forget as the communicators, you know, we're so close to what we're trying to communicate that we just assume they're eat, sleeping and breathing it as much as we are, but they're not. They're trying to get their kids to school. They're trying to like get to their job. You know, they forgot to pick the food up on the way home and, oh, the mother. And, you know, I mean, they've got lives and we want them to have those lives. So we have to remember that we, you know, it's, it's keep it simple um, and keep it clear. And I think that's the big piece, but we also have to be listening too for the, for the people. There's always going to be naysayers. There's always going to be people who want to spread misinformation. And as communicators, especially in the, the larger sort of, space like we've been talking about government, you really do have to be listening so that you start seeing the bubbling of, you know, this is, you don't Mm. want a vacuum to get filled. So you need to sort of shut stuff down pretty quickly and be very comfortable. You know, communicators, this is why crisis is difficult is you do have to be comfortable combating and a little bit more sort of hand-to-hand combat, so to speak, with reporters and and social media, because otherwise, you know, it goes unchecked and therefore Mm. it becomes true. On that point, with the um, the the battle that you may, you may face with media <laughs> journalists, what about from the other side? Now, this doesn't seem to be as much. I mean, you know, there's always there can always be heated conversations around messaging and things like that. No matter what your client or organisation that you're representing could be. But what if, and I imagine this must come up in your world more, that you are representing an organization or a person and you really just disagree with their, with the direction they're going in. It doesn't feel like it's yeah. for the good of the people or the world, but, you know, you are working for them. How do you try and navigate something like that? Yeah, it's a very hard question uh, to answer because, uh, you know, we have like everybody that I'm sure your listeners and and people who sort of get the phone calls of like, could you help us? You know, there have been plenty of people who are looking to just cover up bad stuff. Like that's not what I, my we don't do that. So that's just a very easy. We're not we're not for you, <laughs> and we can sort of end the conversation. But when you get into <clears throat> these really big, complicated, um, especially governmental stuff big programs, big policy programs that impact lots of people. And as you're rolling them out, what you want to do is always have to try to have the focus and bring the client's focus back to what is the, the good for doing this and why are we doing this? And so I think in sort of certainly political arenas, I think all your listeners are very familiar with the fact that it's, you know, politics is a, is a little bit of a sport. It's unfortunate because, you know, that impacts the policies and the things that get rolled out. So I think a lot of what we try to do is to remind, remind people when they start sort of getting veering into the politics, we remind them of the policy impact. And, and the reality is, is if you implement good policy, it, chances are people are going to remember that when it's time to go vote again. Um, and they're going to remember that you sort of delivered on that because again, it's action driven. So we don't always win. I mean, listen, no, no sort of practitioner always wins, but that's what we push back toward is reminding, because it is fascinating to be able to get to work on things like that, where you know that again, while you're really close to it and in the weeds on it, but it is something that will you know, the, the woman you saw in Starbucks getting her coffee may be impacted by that, mm. that great program that you did. And that's, that's, that, that's why I love what I do. Um, but, uh, and love to be able to communicate it and help get it out into the universe and, and have people understand it. 
but it's also true with like businesses, you know, we do a lot of work with really large scale businesses who do incredible foundational work around the world. Um, and so we really love doing that as well. So it's, but it, it's hard. It's very hard to sort of when you're butting up against a client wanting to go a direction and, you know, if it gets, you know, we have, we have at times gotten words where it's so much that we're like, we're not really sure we can help you because you're going to take, you're going to head in a direction that we, we can nearly guarantee you, like it will have an impact on you negatively. And, you know, there are times where that's happened and, you know, we sort of are then sitting in the room going, okay, right. how do we clean yeah. that up? Yeah, I do remember it being more of an issue when I was working at the beginning of my career and I was in a more junior level at a big global agency and and the office that I was in in London was, you know, I was one of 300 people and, you know, you have that feeling when you're working on right. something like, I'm not sure I really believe in this client and the things that they do, um, <laughs> but you feel like you can't have that voice. And I know that when I've spoken to, when I, you know, later on in my career at a smaller agency, we had a really great policy where we, we had a policy of we don't work with dickheads <laughs> and uh, and it was a real policy hey, that is a we great did have a number of points that we had to and as a team and everyone was involved in that agency of going through it and we'd look at the pitch list and be like okay let's let's check out this company what do they do what what are they about what's their what's their um, corporate yeah. responsibility programs and then if it didn't tick off all of the boxes we didn't go to pitch we just thanks but no thanks so it is, it's a real, um, it's a really important area in communications, isn't it? Because you have to believe in what you're communicating. Yeah, you really do. And I, 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 listen, I actually agree with the no dickhead policy because I just think that it is one of those things where it's something we believe in very much at our firm. And, and you know, we had, we were working with this person uh, here in New York and just became completely unreasonable and was lashing out at, at one of my team members. And I just picked the phone up and I was like, yeah, we're, we're exiting our clause. I said, we're going to do it in an elegant way and make sure that you have whatever you need. And I said, but just to be crystal clear, I want you to know that we're exiting because of you. And we're exiting because of the way that you're treating my employee. I was like, you're not going to treat people that work for me that way. And so it's just a not, I agree. And I think it does have to be a non-starter. It's very hard. Cause I know as listen, as a small business owner, you, you know, you want to work with you know, we want to work with everybody, but we really don't, right? At the end of the day. So, um, and the cost that it takes when you do sort of um, work with people who aren't great uh, is pretty great. It's pretty heavy on the team and and, and probably cost you, mm, I think, in the long run. This podcast is brought to you by Coverage Book, the reporting tool that's made by PR people for PR people. Head to coveragebook.com for your free trial. When we are working with an organization that we have the information for and we do care about that organization, I want to look at going back to the misinformation point, because I thought it was really interesting that we talked about that. Um, Now, it's not just been the last 12 months, it's actually been the last couple of years where we've seen more sort of exposing of fake news or not even just fake news, but um, maybe organizations using data in a maybe manipulative way um and so i personally always find it fascinating as to where the responsibility lies in having the information in in the media that people read it has an impact on the public and the way that the world works 
where does responsibility lie? Is it the organisation? Is it the the PR person? Is it the journalist? Where does responsibility lie? That do we have truthful, factual information being fed from organisations to the public? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think there's. I think I would add another category to that as well. I think I would add there are you know, certainly people who are actively weaponizing information so that they can sort of move things in the direction they want them to go. And that's sort of the way that I, the sort of view, whether that's, you know, certainly there was plenty of evidence of that in in sort of our our recent election in 2020, as well as 2016 here in the United States of America. Um, And it's just, there's a lot of ways that like just completely false narratives are getting created and put out there. You know, that's more sort of like really nefarious kind of stuff where it's just bad. Then there's sort of the work that we do, right, where we get data, we get information, um, and then we figure out how to sort of package that up to tell a story. And so I think... I think it's important, really, uh, certainly from the company and the PR person to make sure we 100 percent work very hard to road test the information we're given by the company as we're creating a narrative in terms of, you know, we have lots of really frank pushback. We come in very cynical. Uh, We behave as if we're an investigative reporter on purpose. And we make that very clear sort of when we sign on new clients, like we're not a firm that you hire if you're looking for the yes group. We're not the yes group. We're the group that's going to road test it before it's public because we really want to make sure and have pride in what we're putting out. Can I ask you about that quickly? You know, road testing. So do you, how do you do that with focus groups? Yeah. So, well, it's a combination of things. It can be, um, it can be smaller focus groups. It could be uh, more just sort of when they present data to us, you know, we ask them to sort of walk us through it, show us where you got it. How did you come up with it? Where did it come from? Who are the people? How old is it? You know, just asking those, even those basic questions versus just being like, okay, so it's 68% of blah, blah, blah. We as, we as the PR people can't, and I, you know, I don't think, I don't think people are trying necessarily to mislead, but I don't think they realize what happens. Like if, if somebody does pick the numbers apart, right. If somebody does pick data, which, you know, I think that's always a great way to, to, to tell a story um, and really love doing that. Um, but you have to ask the clients where it came from, how old it is. Are we comfortable? That's two years old. We're talking, you know, in the world we live in is two years old, too old. Maybe not. Like, I just don't know. But if you're not, if you're not digging into that and really sort of pushing back on, uh, and when they're telling us what they want to be saying, right, you know, they're saying, you know, we would like to put this message out. We push back on that, too, of like, well, why is that news? Why, why should that be newsworthy? And then really sort of because it, it helps it get it more refined. It helps it get uh, it helps it sort of pass the smell test so that when you do finally reach out to the reporter or reporters, it immediately sort of has a like, oh, OK, this has been put together. OK, got it. Like. And they'll pick it apart and they should pick it apart. And then to me, it's like it starts with the with the company and the PR folks. And then when it goes out into the press space, then there's responsibility for the reporters to push back on people like me and be like, this doesn't make sense. How, how are you getting to this number? Or why are you saying that? And then and then between that, I think you're going to get a little bit more um, a little bit more clear and, and, and accurate yeah. information out there. Uh, when you have that natural tension, there should be a tension between the PR person and the reporter. There should be. And I don't mean that, that it has to be adversarial, but like 
it makes me better when a reporter challenges mm. me on a message. It really does. Cause like, I, I mean, you know, I, I think it's great, <laughs> but you know, maybe they are right. Maybe it should be uh, tested a little it bit It absolutely more. does. does that and I think that, I that kind of challenge that you and your team and other PR people have from journalists and from editors does really help with making sure that we do have, um, yeah. you know, factual information as much as we can in 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 news media what we don't what we see when we don't have that kind of challenge is when it's on social media um and and that's probably why we've seen such interesting slash awful um um, examples like we saw with Cambridge Analytica when they were did the investigation happened in 2018 I think but as we know it's from the 2016 Trump campaign and the UK Brexit campaign as well that they were involved in when they used yep. data in and created various ads. I think it was mainly it was mainly ads put out um, with that kind of very leading and manipulative information to to sway voters. Um, so I guess with that, like where communications now, it isn't just talking to journalists. We we do put out yes. content on on social media, but then so do other types of marketing organisations as well. And I wonder whether they have the same kind of rigor in ethics, and and where where does that leave us in in being ethical in our communications? <laughs> Yeah, no. Well, just one, I think, you know, it's up to each individual how they do their job and how they decide to be ethical. And unfortunately, it's, you know, we can put all of the things underneath it to sort of <laughs> create a little barriers here and there to sort of, you know, stop, stop what may be more unethical behavior. But, you know, I think by and large, this is my opinion, storytellers, communicators are not trying to put out misinformation. They're not trying to put out bad stuff. They are trying to get traction, right? And so, you know, there is an inherent spin in what we do, right? And what anybody, you you talk to anybody, even if you're sitting at a brunch with friends and everybody's talking, there's even some spin on some of the things that people talking about their life stories, right? So everyone understands that. And I I think what we have to, in my opinion, I think one of the things that's important is as individuals stepping out of our roles as professionals, we have to pay attention to what we're consuming, what we're regurgitating. And it it is going to, I do think somehow we have to get into that a little bit where individuals do need to sort of look at, wait a minute, I just reshared that, but I didn't actually read that. Yes. I just retweeted that and I thought it was really smart and snappy but I don't know if that's right. And listen, I, I'm a big believer that social media has really changed the world, good and bad. Um, and I think it is complicated. It is nuanced because there is some incredible level setting that has happened with social media that um, has helped bring equity, that has helped bring transparency uh, that just didn't exist before. Um, and so how do we hold on to those things? How do we hold the companies accountable you know, how do we also all have, you know, at least, you know, the United States and, and other, you know, democracies, how do we continue to, to believe in free speech and be comfortable with the idea that yes, people are going to say things that offend you. And, and we, we want to make sure that everybody can talk. <laughs> and we want to make sure that I don't like a lot of what's said, trust me, as, as a gay man in America, I have walked the gauntlet of like horrible things being said from elected officials uh, on down. And so, but in order for them, 
I, it also means that I get to say what I want on the, in the public square. And so I don't quite know the right balance of that. And I, I don't minimize the impact of words because I think words are very powerful. But I do think in terms of how communicators, PR people sort of look at what they're putting out there. I, you know, they need to continue to be ethical. They need to continue to, to fight for that because there is so much misinformation out there. And if we can all help be part of removing that, holding people accountable um, as, as a profession, then I think we can, you know, uh, hopefully start to peel some of it back. But I just, this is going to be, our, I think this is a decade, the next decade of, of mm. our of our. What's of our interesting profession. that you just said there is um, the difference between, and it was, I think it was the point before when we were talking about the being challenged by an editor or a journalist with the facts that you're providing and, and having lots of stats and more of the context of a story, the contrast to social media. Yeah. I did a, a, a whole podcast on this once that it was with some guys that created memes and they had become very successful in just creating memes <laughs> whole agency just in that but they they had they talked about the, the thumb stopper and that's like an official term of, of, of how to grab people's attention on social media so you know thinking about that that's an actual marketing term now that's the, the, the thumb stopper moment. i know i literally so, am like i'm I'm gobsmacked. Yeah, like, at and that you know, term. that's Go all on. lovely if we're thinking about <laughs> a, fun, a, a fun meme. But you know, when we're talking about the the topics that that we're discussing today, you don't have the the background information, the stats that an article in the news will have of that background. It's just literally the the headline, um, which is the, could be the yeah. problems, isn't it? Um, and I think that just listening to you speak about social media, the impact it can have. But then also media relations, you know, over the years we've heard, is media relations dead? You know, is it all about social? <laughs> no. And it feels like, yeah. you know, that, that's <laughs> that's why. Um, and so to your question back to you after that very <laughs> long insight, I've just realised from listening to you speak that, you know, how is your communications for your team, for the organisations that you work on? Is it all still media relations? Do you, do you dip into social? How does it look? Oh yeah. It's both. I mean, you don't, you can't really, I mean, at this point, I, I think when you say media, in my mind, it just includes news. social. News um, and journalists. I, I just don't. Articles. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't. Yeah. It, like it, to me, when you talk about a communications plan, there's, you have to have some sort of social, right? Um, I don't know that I agree with that personally, but it just is the world we are in. And so we have to tactically and uh, use the tools and tactics that are available to sort of reach where people are. And that's where the eyes are right now and will likely stay for a long, long time. So we 100% bounce between both. There are certain times where we really are just sort of wrestling, uh, you know, news and reporters uh, either on a story or pitching or really looking for sort of, because I do think what, where media, meaning traditional uh, news outlets are, they're just such strong validators, right? So when you are talking about wanting, you know, validation for the work you're doing versus, you know, what can often be just this a tsunami of social media of just everybody. It's just a big foghorn, um, in my opinion, of 
people putting stuff out. And it doesn't mean that some of it doesn't resonate, you know, and by the way, some of the misinformation that is being used out there are being used by meme creators because Mm. people are happy to repurpose a meme really quickly. So when people think about misinformation, they need to Mm. include memes. It's not just news articles or headlines or fake headlines or whatever we want to call it. You know, it is a, the memes are a highly useful tool to spread information rapidly um so it's true because people um, feel like it's um you know when we look at our peers on social media it feels that you know i'm just gonna re i'm just gonna reshare this but i'm not getting too political because it's just a meme but actually it could be saying something really strong (laughs) yeah it's absolutely yeah i mean yeah so i but i do i where i think um what a lot of people are hunting for um, and it's also very hard to break through just because of the way the business has changed um, is uh, the validation from standard news outlets. Right. And then there's obviously the times where they're, you know, standard news outlets are investigating people, which we get called. Interesting. And so. um, just before we wrap up, because we have actually been talking for almost an hour now, it's just gone so quickly. Um, <laughs> it's been great. Something that we talked about earlier, it, we touched on it a couple of times and we started right at the beginning when uh, you shared how you got into this area of of PR, but also when yeah. I remembered being at the beginning of my career and sending in um, on behalf of an organization, which I didn't really feel that was ethically sound <laughs> and what I believed in personally, you know, what kind of advice could you give yeah. to a, a young PR exec who, who might be feeling like that right now and, and maybe is passionate about other areas, but um, is not currently doing communications for, for those topics? Yeah, no, I love that question. Listen, I think when we're all young, we're we're sort of just going out and and eager to just, you know, make our way in the world and prove our points and and really like carve our path, so to speak. And I think that there's also just, you know, the reality is when you're young, you need to get a job and, and pay your bills. So hopefully you can move out and have your own place and, you know, have a life and, you know, go out and have fun so one i hope they're all the young people are all still having a ton of fun as soon as new york and london (laughs) opens again i'm um, sure they'll be back into it (laughs) god god willing um and so i'm not young anymore but i'll I'll be (laughs) Uh, (laughs) young everyone who knows me in the vr world knows this they're like why is she talking about those young people not in those bars (laughs) i'm like can we open it back up please um Am I reaching for the stars here? So I, uh, but no, in terms of work, listen, if you're in a spot, regardless of, uh, you know, if you're looking to get into something that you're more passionate about, you know, I I love when people, younger people reach out to me and ask for advice. I love, uh, and I, I would encourage people to do that. You may send the email, you may send the LinkedIn and it may get unnoticed, but like, that doesn't mean you, you may land on the right person at the right time. Who's like, yeah, I'll totally talk to you. Don't be afraid to network. And if it's an organization, for instance, if it is more sort of in the um, nonprofit foundation space, you know, look, while you have your job and you know you like you're clearly building a skill set um, that is valuable, you know, offer to volunteer. There's plenty of opportunities with, especially if, if especially if it's more in sort of that. If if they're wanting to move into that space, it's a little bit it's a little bit trickier, sort of like jumping in or doing uh, in a for profit space. But if it's in a nonprofit space you know, there's plenty of opportunities to volunteer, get to know the organization, get to know sort of get to know the area that you're really thinking that you're interested in, you know, because sometimes too, you go and you find out and you're like, 
oh my God, I don't want to like, are you kidding? That's crazy making. Or you may find out, gosh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And then you, you start to you move your move through that. But I, I highly encourage people and I, and I really can't say it enough. Young people should be very comfortable reaching out to people um, in an industry that they like, respect, and just, you know, finding the, finding a way to ask for help so that it doesn't feel cumbersome to the person that you're asking, right? Like you don't want to sort of be like mentor me. Cause then everyone's going to be like, what does that mean? I'm too busy. Right. So, but just maybe have a specific ask when you reach out to them, because then it becomes very easy for a quick reply. On that, so. how can people um, find you, even if they don't all demand <laughs> that you mentor them, but um, even if they're just interested in uh, what the Hayes <laughs> Initiative is up to and um, from what you've talked about, it does sound really interesting. What are your socials and things? How can people find you guys? Yeah, sure. We're we're primarily focused uh, at the Hayes Initiative on LinkedIn. So I'm on LinkedIn, Anthony Hayes, H-A-Y-E-S. Um, and then anybody who wants to reach out, you know, Anthony at HayesInitiative.com. Just shoot me an email. Great. Anthony, thank you so much for your time great. today. Thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Same. I'll see you same, in same. New York very soon. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. All right. Have a good one. And you. This is the PR Resolution Podcast. Keep in touch by following me on Twitter at Stella Bales. For more reading on PR, head to blog.coveragebook.com. Don't forget to tune in to the next episode and make sure you subscribe to the series on iTunes now. See you there.